Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Today is Horticulture Day. I'm Charity Nebbe. Fall color is pretty much on schedule this year. According to the Iowa Department of Natural Resources, color in northeastern Iowa is peaking right now and should remain pretty spectacular for the next week or so if things go well. Our resident fall color expert, Mark Vitosh, DNR Forester, is here. Mark, when trees change color, tell me what they're doing. So... We live in the Midwest and we have winter. So most of our species are broadleaves and they are deciduous. So they shut down for the winter. And part of that process, <clears throat> they basically take the material that they have in the leaves and they start to slow down and they basically take their carbohydrates in the form of sugars and starch and they ship them back into the tree. And as they do that, <clears throat> They've been showing their green colors all summer, which are produced by some cells called chlorophyll, and that's where we see that green color. At this, and those are pigments. At the same time, there's actually some other pigments uh, in those leaves all summer called carotenoids, and those give us some of the yellows and some of the oranges. But the interesting thing is they are there, and as the chlorophyll starts to break down, so basically, as we get uh, as our day lengths shorten and our nights lengthen, there's a signal there. Hey, winter may be coming. In days like today, <laughs> I'm shivering. Uh, the signs are there. So as that material gets broken down, basically the carotenoids start to get uncovered, and we start to see those yellows and sometimes oranges. Um, the other thing that's interesting that happens, those are there the whole time. And so as they get unmasked, we see those colors. But our our really rich reds and purples are actually not produced until this time of year. Those are called anthocyanins, and those are not in the leaf all summer. They do not get produced to this time of year. And critical to that and helpful to that production is basically clear days and cool nights, which we do not have today. And wind and rain and all that doesn't really help. But what happens when we have clear days, that leaf still produces a lot of sugar through photosynthesis. But when we get cool nights, that sugar gets trapped in that leaf and you get the production of anthocyanins. And that helps in that production of that nice purple-red color. So the last week or so, we've had unusually warm highs. Yes. But we have had cool nights. Does that count for clear days and cool well, nights it's, or it's, not? It's not clear days, cool temperatures. It's we need the cool temperatures at night. And if, still, if it's hot, as long as we have that sun to help with that basically sugar production and stuff, it, I don't know if it really matters if it's 60 degrees or 70 or what, 91? Right. We do know, though, that the 91 and those and the drought has had some impact, too, in that production, and sometimes our colors kind of get washed out. I This time of year in our, in our towns and stuff, we get a lot of these hybrid maples and these red maples that everybody wants because they have this great fall color. They're so beautiful. 
this year, some of those trees kind of have a washy brown look. They don't have a great example. There's two trees right outside of this studio that I noticed this morning that have no fall color at all, that they're green and the edges are basically brown and they're dropping all their leaves. Now, throughout town, I've seen some of those hybrid maples that's, that are just in the last five days are really starting to pop and show that color. But I've also seen red maples in other areas that some have good colors and some that maybe are in tougher sites that have been dry uh, don't look so good. So uh, the weather can have, I mean, basically this is going to happen every year. And then the weather can really determine how vibrant it is, how long it lasts, you know, all kinds of different things. Right. Even as things are shifting in our world due to climate change, the day lengths are remaining the same. So those that trigger is, is, still is going to be consistently yes. there at yes. the same time every year. Things may, you know, looking at the extended forecast, um, at first I thought it was going to be in the 70s next week, but I think it's now in the 60s. <clears throat> so we're, you know, because... The big thing this year has been kind of funny with the drought and everything. A bunch of us and people talking, oh, man, we're two, three weeks ahead. This is just really rolling. Wow, you know, we'll be done by the 1st of October. Well, <laughs> here we are, and things are just kind of where they normally are. Yeah. I mean, on average, uh, depending on where you are in the state, we're usually late September through about the third to fourth week of October. Obviously, as you get further south, you get towards that end of October, but I've talked to multiple people in the last couple of days, and they all said, gosh, I thought we were a couple of weeks ahead, but I think we're about normal. So we seem to always kind of come back to that. And an interesting thing, when I first started here 23 years ago, I saw an article in the fall by a, a local uh, naturalist or somebody, and they said, they asked them to predict fall color, and they said October 5th, plus or minus 10 days. <laughs> and that pretty much fits. I mean, it can be earlier, it can be later. And, you know, basically late September, get ready, early October, and then let the weather come and see what happens. Right. And of course, it can be spectacular for two days and then a storm can blow through and it's almost all over. So you never know exactly what you're going to get. We have talked about trees being under stress. And, and so I want to return to the drought topic because we do see some trees showing fall color early, in August even, if they are under stress. With the drought, have we seen more of that? I, I think we have. I mean, I was actually seeing stressed trees showing fall color when I got back from Ragbri. Mm. That's late July. And so trees in parking lots, trees in um, planting pits and just stressful situations. If you're seeing fall color, I mean, I saw quite a bit of fall, you know, just a tree here, tree there, all through August in different places. Um, that's usually an indication that that tree is stressed for whatever reason. In this case, in most cases, it's probably drought in those situations. But even trees like cottonwood and river birch that grow in our bottoms, um, probably mid-August, I start seeing some of those trees. What they do, um, they actually, their tips stay green, but their inner leaves turn yellow because those inner leaves don't produce as much photosynthate food for the tree. So, hey, the tree says, hey, I'm under stress. Let's shut down a few of these things. So they start changing color, their inner leaves first, 
And so I did see some of that in mid-August and stuff. So I did see a response of some of those trees. And even um, we don't typically talk about conifers, but some conifers actually have fall color. For example, the white pines only hold one year of needles. Last year's needles always drop in the fall. But when you have a, and so every year I get a call, what's wrong with my white pine? Somebody moved in, new tree. Hey, the inner needles are turning yellow. Well, that's okay. But in years that it's really dry, it seems like it's a very um, tight change, quick change, and very abrupt. And you kind of go around and the white pines are just like this bright yellow. It's kind of neat on the inside, but people kind of panic. Another one that does that is Arbovida. So again, they normally do that, but when we have drier conditions, it seems to be more abrupt. And two, um, with the wind and the dryness, some of these trees, like I love shagbark hickory, has a nice yellow color and then usually kind of turns a brown. I've noticed it starting to come in the last five to six days in, in my general district, eastern central Iowa, and uh, it's already turning brown. It kind of wants to be yellow, but then it's kind of brown. And I think the weather and the dryness has something to do with that. One of the things that you have helped me understand and enjoy over the years, Mark, <laughs> is the progression of of species changing colors in the fall. And it really has deepened my appreciation beyond the, this is just beautiful. But tell us a little bit about the the progression. What are we seeing as the trees begin to turn? So the theme in the last, I keep saying, last five to six days, talking to people and just, I I made a trip to Muscatine on Wednesday, trying to be very observant, just paying attention. The theme right now is yellow. The theme in the beginning is usually yellow. So that's your cottonwoods, silver maples, green ash, if you still have green ash, um, black walnut, uh, willows. Those are the species that kind of give you... Uh, another one is honey locusts. Uh, so those are kind of our yellows. And then you start sp- spackling in, whatever you want to call it, or popping in. Um, well, the other thing with those yellows at the same time, though, is our roadsides, and that's your sumacs. Your bright red sumac. Yes, yeah. that kind of bright red sumac. And then that purple, which I don't think people give a lot of credit, of our shrub dogwoods. You get these big clumps along the fence rows, along the tree edges. Give it, It's not a bright, but it is a purple. And so those are always like clockwork. If, if you see the sumacs, hey, fall's coming. And then you see the yellows, hey, it's really coming. Um, and then after that, you start spotting in um, species like the sugar maple, especially in our uplands. You get those oranges and the reds. And then waiting at the very end, well, the other one I have to throw in there at the same time you get the yellows is if we still have, and we do in places, is the white ash gives you a purple too. So you get that purple from the white ash about right now as you're getting the yellows on the green ash. And then towards the end, sometimes those other ones have already kind of dumped their leaves. You, you still have those oaks hanging in there so you can get the reds of the red oaks and the pen oaks, um, and you get some brown mixed on some species, yellows of the burrs and the swamps. And then also on white oak, it's it's more of a maroon purple. And in years when it's good, that's actually one of my favorites yeah. is seeing a white oak with that purple fall color. So 
we probably have two to three weeks left, depending on the weather. They say peak in some places, but again, we've always talked about this. What is peak? Uh, it doesn't seem like all the colors are there at the same time because the other neat thing is now, too, I forgot, is the vines. You've got uh, Virginia creeper right now. You've got some green trees with this just red, purple in there. That's awesome. Yeah. And we don't like it, but poison it ivy, poison is, ivy beautiful. is beautiful, too. So all kinds of things. Mark Vitosh, DNR Forester. To track fall color in Iowa, you can go to iowadnr.gov. You can also sign up to get the fall colors report sent to your inbox. I'm Charity Nubby. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. It's Horticulture Day today. We've been talking about fall color so far, but of course, you are welcome to join the conversation with your questions about the plants and trees in your life. You can give us a call at 866-780-9100, 866-780-9100. You can send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. Mark Vitosh, DNR Forrester, is here, and also Aaron Style, Iowa State University Extension Horticulture Specialist. Hello, Aaron. Good morning. And over here, we were talking about how northeastern Iowa is really reaching peak color. I have seen some pretty good reports from central Iowa, too. What are you, what are you seeing, Aaron? Yeah, you, you know, walking over here um, on Iowa State University's campus, I've noticed, uh, kind of as Mark was mentioning, a lot of yellows. Uh, the honey locusts are turning uh, yellow. Um, and uh, I haven't seen a lot. Uh, you know, I have a favorite white oak that turns a beautiful kind of reddish purple color. That's just green right now. So we still have a little bit of fall color ahead of us, but we are definitely at the beginning. And there's almost no place in Iowa more beautiful than the Iowa State University campus in fall. <laughs> just a personal <laughs> opinion there, just opining. <laughs> you can join the conversation with your questions, 866-780-9100. You can send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. And Sue is on the line first off in LeClaire. Hi, Sue. Hi. Hi, what's your question? Yes. Well, my question is, we planted a tricolor beach as a memorial for our daughter at our church and it it needs to be pruned because it's looking a little bit more like a bush than a tree so i'm wondering when's the best time to trim that it's about six years old now so um you know it's not not a new tree it's pretty well established and I also want to know what kind of fertilizer we should put on it. Okay. Right. Sue, I'll, I'll start with that, Sue. The thing to think about is um, if you can, if you can develop one straight leader. So if it is kind of shrubby, if there's one leader and you've got two forks or three forks, you'd want to prune one of those out. And as far as timing, 
I would wait and let fall finish here, and then this winter would not be a bad time. If you want to wait later towards, you know, February, that's fine, but any time in the winter would be fine. The thing to remember, too, is if you're going to eventually get some clearance on that tree, you may have to start taking up some lower branches, but you want to leave those lower branches till they get about an inch. And then you try to get them before they're two inches. You don't want to go in and just get a lift and all of a sudden have seven foot of clearance because that's too much and that tree feeds itself. And the way it feeds itself is through those branches. So it's kind of a slow process. There's actually a good uh, pruning publication through Iowa State, through horticulture. If you go to the Iowa State Extension Store online and pruning shade trees, I believe, or pruning trees, you'll find it. Really good publication. But again, if it's more shrubby, I would try to find if you have a leader and you might have to do what we call reduction cut to reduce some of that competition for that leader to develop that. But it's going to be kind of a slow process. Um, But with double leaders, the sooner you can develop a leader, that's the first thing you want to do. And then you start the lifting process from there if you need to. And as far as fertilizer, I'll tell you, uh, with trees in most of our soils, unless they are showing nutrient deficiencies, I don't get too concerned. I'd probably be more concerned with a tricolor beech with as dry as it's been and stuff. If if it's in a dry site or if it looks a little stressed, I'd be more concerned about some fall watering, even for a six-year-old plant. Sue, thank you so much for the question. That's such a lovely memorial. And you can join our conversation next, 866-780-9100. You can send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. Jim in Iowa City says, our tomatoes didn't do very well this year. Do I blame the drought? Do I blame myself? I blamed the soil. After some suggestions and research, I planted cereal rye. Do I keep it down to any particular height before the cold settles in? And are, do you have any tips for spring preparation of the garden? Aaron? Um, yeah. So, yeah, there are lots of reasons why they, the tomatoes may not have done well. Certainly high on my list would be uh, dry conditions. Uh, most vegetable gardens need some irrigation throughout the season to produce well. And this summer would have been very important for regular irrigation since Mother Nature did not provide a lot of rain through most of the growing season uh, in most of the state. So um, the cover crop's a nice idea. It'll also help introduce some organic matter, which will be beneficial uh, for the vegetable garden. There's no need to mow it. Um, Let it get tall, and um, you can let it overwinter and then um, kill it off in the spring. It'll be really important to make sure that you do kill it um, if winter doesn't take uh, a big chunk of it out uh, because if you're not careful, cover crops can be awful weeds uh, later on in the season. So uh, sometimes you can, there are lots of different ways to kill it. For the home gardener, often the easiest way is uh, either to till it under or to use a herbicide to kill it. All right. Jim, thanks for the question. 866-780-9100 is the number to call. Email talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. Next up, let's go to Ron in Trenton, Missouri. Hi, Ron. Thanks. First, uh, because silver maple are dull colors and very weak and they're terribly destroyed by wind and ice storms, I want to graft onto a one-inch diameter 
silver maple stump, uh, whatever will work. Um, sugar maple, red maple, or I have a purple violet colored Norway maple that I can take cuttings off of. That's the first thing. Um, do different species of maples grow adequately when grafted or would it, the wind just tear it off in five or 10 years? Second is um, we read that to force a pear tree to produce fruit, we need to prune the roots. And I didn't know if October was the correct time to do that. Three, um, I wanted to graft at least four varieties uh, of the same species onto apples, pears, pawpaws, and persimmons, and four, thanks for the reminder about honey locusts. A great friend was concerned last week that hers had lost 90% of its leaves, so I said, let me check. I walked a block into their woods, and the other honey locusts, you know, away from the house had also lost most of their leaves, so uh, Thank you. All right, that. Ron, you are ambitious. Uh, Aaron, you want, you want to take this one? So let's start with uh, grafting something onto a silver maple. Yeah, I you know, my first inclination is that silver maple may not be the best roots uh, rootstock for um, other maples. And I don't know offhand if maples across species will graft well together. Um, I would be inclined to um, just either purchase a new tree or to graft on onto something that's the same species. So if you're doing a sugar maple, finding sugar maple rootstock, um, most of the time it's easier just to purchase in that tree um, than than to do some of those things. So. Uh, I feel like the silver maple, even if it would work, would be really vigorous, um, maybe even more so than uh, other species of maples that you talked about, uh, even though most maples are fairly vigorous. Um, in terms of the pear and root pruning, there has been some research out there done that shows that root pruning on established pear trees can be helpful for getting um, a little bit better um, production, fruit production. You would do that root pruning over the winter months. So um, it would probably be either first thing here after the trees go dormant, but before the, the ground gets super frozen, or later in the winter when the ground thaws, but the trees have yet to leaf out. So there was another question. Too. Right. It was about um, grafting on all kinds of different fruit species yeah. onto one tree. Yes. Yes. This is very possible. Um, there are lots of examples of this in, uh, kind of, it's more of a novelty than it is anything else. You're not going to get amazing fruit production from these kinds of trees, but they are fun and it is a fun project to do. Um, and you can graft, uh, several different varieties of apple onto the same rootstock. You would use a tea bud graft, um, and, uh, have each branch that develops be a different variety of apple. All right. <laughs> Ron, you've got a lot of projects going on. You can call us. You don't have to have as many projects as Ron. You can have just one thing <laughs> if you want. 866-780-9100 is the number to call. You can email talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. Next up, uh, Bruce is on the line in Cedar Rapids. Hi, Bruce. Hi. Hi. Hey, I was wondering, uh, it was such a dry year and, uh, I elected to water my yard instead of letting it go dormant like some of my neighbors. And uh, those were some painful water bills, but I'm wondering, 
is it best to let your yard go dormant and not throw that water on it? Or is it better to water it? Is there, or is this a, a, a choice that you have to make one way or the other? And then the last, I have another question is, when's a good time? I have a couple of uh, Japanese maples that are kind of out of control. And I just wonder what would be a good time to prune those. And that's it. All right. We'll let Aaron go first with the grass. Yeah, so it really is kind of a, a personal preference in terms of letting the lawn go dormant or not. Of course, ma lots of folks really enjoy having the green lawn even through the summer months, and it requires water to do that. Our cool season lawns, comprised primarily of Kentucky bluegrass, can go dormant for about six weeks before you start to see any damage um, or plant die back. Uh, so it is possible to let them go dormant and uh, then pull them you know, out of dormancy later on in the fall by watering or letting Mother Nature do it by providing more rain. The, the big thing is, uh, is the kind of uh, the amount of water it takes to keep it out of dormancy, to keep it green. It does, as you've probably experienced, it does take a lot of irrigation to do that. And so that's a primary decision uh, kind of factor that Driver, folks will yeah. use for this. It's, it's hard to spend that much money on your water bill for something uh, like that. But if it's important to you, you absolutely can do it. Either is, is, a, is an okay route. I personally do not water my lawn over the summer months. I, um, I'm fine with it going dormant. The only time I will worry is if, it, if it's more than about a month and a half, then, then I do have to do something where I'm going to have big bare patches where grass has died out. All right, Japanese maple. Well, I just have to say, I used to live in the South, and they used to dye their their brown <laughs> lots with green. They did. I'm sorry. Yeah, I've seen they that. did. Not all South, but it was interesting. There's other options. I wouldn't <laughs> recommend them. I'm just telling you. No. Okay, let's get the pruning. Sorry. I just had to throw that out there. Oh, dear. Um, so I'm not a big fall pruning guy. I think there's two times I like to avoid pruning trees in general. That's in the spring when they're leafing out and they're falling in the fall flowering, I'm sorry, and in the fall when they're changing color, which we're kind of getting there. So dormant season is a good time. The other option for non-oak species is actually early summer, kind of uh, June, right in there when after things leaf out and slow down, that's another time to prune. So he could prune uh, this winter uh, or again, like I said earlier, he can wait till like February and do some pruning because then he'll get right into spring. Or if he wants to wait, he can do it early summer. The thing I'd be careful with uh, any tree is not to try to prune more than 10 to 15 percent at any time. Trees need foliage, so you don't want to over prune them. And the way they often respond if we take too much is they'll put on epicormic shoots or sprouts. So we just need to, to minimize and focus, you know, on something like a Japanese maple would be branches rubbing and crossing. If he wants to shape it a little bit, he can, but you want to minimize how much you prune. All right, Bruce, thanks a lot for the call. 866-780-9100 is the number. Email talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. Linda's on the line in Cedar Rapids. Hi, Linda. Hi. Hey, thanks for taking my call. This question is kind of for Mark. Mark, I'm thinking about planting four new trees this fall but I'm scared because of this El Nino building up and it said we're supposed to be really dry and, and Charity, you had a retired climatologist from Iowa State on maybe a year ago saying we're in an 89-year-old like drought cycle and it's 
kind of like the death bowl. Is this, should I even think about planting trees right now or wait a couple years? Well, as they say in Iowa, if you wait five minutes, the weather will change. And we just can't predict it, you know. So who knows what's going to happen. The good, the thing I'll tell you is even if it was three years, one thing you can do with new trees, and we usually do it the first couple of years, is water. So with a new young tree, uh, you're going to be able to water it. And, and if, if you do a good job of water management, I think you can make it through things. We just, you know, it's just really hard to predict how long this is going to last. I did see a, a fact yesterday that I think we're in our third year of where we're actually below normal in most of parts of Iowa for precip and some of those things. So it definitely is dry. But with good watering, mulching, and those kinds of things, you can really reduce the stress on young trees. And that first two to three years is the most critical so hopefully if you can water for those first couple of years and things, you know, get Change, better, you, you yeah. didn't lose three years of growth. So I, I would go ahead and plant. Uh, but again, do good water management. Linda, thanks so much for the call. Lynn in Iowa City says, when should I bring inside my house plants and herbs that have been outside all summer long? <laughs> I brought mine in yesterday. <laughs> um, we we brought ours in last night in the dark. <laughs> yes, yes. So uh, typically my rule of thumb is when I see nighttime temperatures dipping below 50. That's when, that's my cue to be uh, thinking about making sure I have my stuff in a row so I can bring that stuff in um, at that time. So uh, we've kind of hit that. Um, it's a little bit later, I think, than normal for yeah. most of us. So. Um, that's kind of nice. They got maybe an extra week outside, which I'm sure they enjoyed. But now for most of the state, it's probably about the time you'll want to do that. And I just saw a frost advisory for the western, a western swath of the state and a freeze warning uh. for northwestern Iowa. Just saw that a few minutes ago. So especially well, we if you are coming. out west, <laughs> do it today, right? Yep. 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 These plants are not going to tolerate any kind of uh, below freezing temperatures. And some of them will even see damage um, in the upper 30s. Uh, so bring them in. All right. Lynn, thank you so much. An important question. <laughs> Absolutely. You can join our conversation with your questions. 866-780-9100. 866-780-9100. Email talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. We are going to take a short break, then we'll be back to answer more of your questions. With me today, Aaron Style, Iowa State University Extension Horticulture Specialist, and Mark Vitosh, DNR Forester. And of course, for more gardening information and tips, you can subscribe to our Garden Variety newsletter. You can find out more about it at iowapublicradio.org slash garden. This is Talk of Iowa. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. It's Horticulture Day today. With me, Mark Vitosh, DNR Forester, and Aaron Style, Iowa State University Extension Horticulture Specialist. And you are welcome to join the conversation with your questions. 866-780-9100. George is up next in Guthrie Center. Hi, George. Yes, hi. Hi. Um, my, 
I have uh, two questions. Uh, the first is, if I can cut little trees and paint them with glyphosate, what should the uh, strength be, half strength or full strength or whatever? And That's... The, uh, the second question is, uh, I have an asparagus patch that's 30 feet from a big tooth aspen tree, and it keeps putting sprigs up in my patch, and I cut them off every year, and they keep coming back. Uh, can I cut those sprigs with, and put glyphosate on them, or will that hurt the uh, big tooth aspen tree, or is there any ideas that uh, to remedy that? All right, George, uh, thanks a lot. Mark? I'll take both of those. All right. George, what I'll mm-hmm. tell you is uh, on glyphosate is read the label. You're going to see different rates. Usually when we're doing woody stumps, it's a little heavier rate, usually 50% or higher, but it can be as low as 20%. So I would read your label of, of the particular one that you're purchasing, but it usually is a higher rate than the 1% to 2% that we use for foliage and stuff like that. As far as using glyphosate on your aspen, um, they actually root sucker. So those sprouts are connected probably to your parent tree. So if you want that parent tree, I would not use a chemical on those. And all I can really tell you is maybe at the garden area, you kind of keep a trench or something where you can kind of keep severing it so the roots don't keep Mm. coming in there and putting those sprouts up. That may be a more long-term, especially if there's a decent distance where you're not going to If you're a good distance from the tree and you kind of keep that area cut and don't let roots come in there. um, How deep a trench? uh, I would probably say one to two feet. Uh, Or maybe you just take your rototiller and and every year just make a little swath there and try to get down a couple, you know, one to two feet. Or if you've got something, a small little plow or just a... uh, like a little vibratory like little plow that you can pull across there and just keep that severed so they don't keep coming in. Now, if you're really close to that big tree, I wouldn't do that because that's going to cause damage. But if you're number, them every year. If your number of feet, it's something he's going to have to deal with on a regular basis. But do I would not put any chemical on those sprouts. All right, George, thanks a lot for the call. Next up, Bill in Corden. Hi, Bill. Uh, hi, Charity. This is... Bill and Corden. Hi. Uh, we have an Eastern Lily here in this in an assisted living that was given to us last at Easter time. We kept it all summer and it grew nicely and now it's grown way out of taller, much taller than it should. But the buds on the top of the lily uh, opened up the other day, and they're yellow instead of white. Hmm. So you've got uh, you've got yellow flowers on it right now. You got yellow flowers on a white lily. Oh, interesting, Aaron. Why might that be? Ah, oh, you know, it's hard to know for sure. If it's if it's if you've never seen it bloom, it could simply just be the um, the variety is a little bit more cream in color or not quite as clear white or um, it's not exactly the lily you thought it was. If it has bloomed white before, um, it may be a sign of, I suspect, especially if it's still in a container 
that it is probably a little nutrient deficient, and so that can alter color sometimes um, on leaves and, and flowers. Uh, so that may have something to do with it. Light conditions would play a role in it potentially too. It's hard to say for sure um, exactly why. And and the pollen is yellow and stains and can stain the petals, although you wouldn't expect, you would see blotches of it right. in that situation. It wouldn't be the whole petal. So um, it's it's hard to know for sure exactly what caused it to turn that color, Um but it could be any of those things. Well, and Bill, it sounds like you've had a whole lot of fun watching it over the summer. Oh, yeah. So this is this is a fun mystery. Thanks so much for the call. Jim is up next in Des Moines. Hi, Jim. Yes, my vegetable garden got away from me this year, and it's it's mostly weeds right now. What should I do to that this fall to have it be more manageable next spring? I would focus my efforts this fall on removing flowers and seed pods so that you aren't contributing more to this, the weed seed bank that might be there. Um, you, can, um, you can do some fall tilling and, and pull, pull all that material under, um, but you'll want to get in there first thing in the spring and manage those weeds that may pop up. Um, uh, so I would start with those to help. And then... You know, with with vegetable gardens, weed management is really beneficial and staying ahead of it, of course, makes it a lot easier. But you can also use mulches, newspaper, sheets of newspaper or cardboard can also work in a vegetable garden setting uh, to help suppress. Most of the time in our vegetable gardens, the weeds are annual weeds that that sprout in the spring, things like purslane and foxtail and those kinds of things. And uh, if we can get a mulch layer down and stay ahead of them, it makes a huge difference for this time of year later in the season. All right. Thanks so much for the call. Next up, let's go to Sharon in Johnston. Hi, Sharon. Hi. I had brought my plants in uh, yesterday also, and I wanted to know if uh, eventually if some kind of bugs tend to uh, appear that I didn't know about when I brought them in. What should I do to control them? Yeah, so this is a, a very common thing to accidentally bring in some quote-unquote friends on these plants. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the problem, if it's going to present itself, usually happens in the first two to four weeks. And so good scouting early, you know, in the next several weeks uh, and catching it as early as possible will make a huge difference instead of, being in January and noticing that the floor underneath is sticky and it's covered in scale or mealybug or something like that. Uh, so finding it early will make a huge difference. When you do find it um, indoors, I like to use products like insecticidal soap um, because they just are a little bit friendlier being in my home. Uh, but there are, of course, other pesticides that you can use. Depending on the pest, a good wash down in the tub or the kitchen sink can make a big difference too. Um, in eliminating a lot of it, but whatever it is, it will take some persistence. It's not a one and done thing. You don't wash it once and then every all the problems are gone, or you don't apply the insecticidal soap once and all the problems are gone. You'll have to do it on a regular basis for several weeks to get all the new generations that might be coming out um, and to get the entire population um, hopefully eradicated. So um, good scouting to begin with is the best place to start. Find it early if it happens at all. Sharon, thanks for the call, and good luck with that. Good luck to all of us. Carol is on the line next in Melbourne. Hi, Carol. Hi. I have a hydrangea bush um, that is about as tall as the house, 
and I wanted to find out uh, the best way to get it cut down um, to a more manageable shape. Mm-hmm. Is this a is this a like a, a panicle hydrangea, like a PG type hydrangea, um, or is it a different species? Do you know? I don't know what species it is. Okay. Does it kind of have kind of pyramidal just, or elongated clusters, or are they really ball-shaped? Ball, they're ball-shaped. Okay. So both, actually, both panicle, um, it's likely that it's either a panicle hydrangea or um, a, a smooth hydrangea, or sometimes we call them Annabelle hydrangeas because that's the most popular cultivar. Both of these hydrangeas bloom on current year's growth. So that makes pruning a lot easier um, because it won't impact uh, the flowering as much. Um, I would wait until late winter and uh, cut them back. You can, you can be, especially if it's well-established, you can be fairly harsh on the cutback um, if you need to be, um, and you'll get some re-sprout. And the flowers might be a week or two later than normal, but they'll come. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks a lot for the call, Carol. And let's do some email questions here. We've got a lot of questions. I think we can make it through a lot of these, <laughs> but we, we do have a lot today. Gail in Grinnell says, My family is buried in a cemetery in northwestern Iowa. When I noticed that many of the trees in the cemetery had been removed or were in poor shape, I offered to pay for new trees to be planted. I was told by the city that they were not going to plant any more trees, that the cost of maintenance was too much. It is a very small town, so they probably don't have much of a budget. Is there a tree that can be planted in cemeteries that is long-lived and does not require a lot of maintenance? Mark? There really is no such thing, to be honest. I mean, every tree eventually is going to need some maintenance. Uh, they have leaves. It's just a challenging thing with some. We have even have some communities that are no longer, uh, no longer allowing trees to be planted between the street and the sidewalk right away. So sometimes that budget... Uh, is pretty tough. the The one tree I think of maybe is it, it. It's not great for habitat and stuff, but ginkgo is one that, when it drops its leaves, it tends to just drop them. And usually their structure is pretty good and stuff. It's going to need initial maintenance to get established. But if she wants to try to throw one at them to try to to get a chance, that that might be one that. Might be a little more limited. But you want to make sure it's a male. Correct. Ginkgo. Then you'd really be in trouble if it wasn't. Right, because yes. the berries of the Correct. female ginkgo but they smell are supposed, terrible. They are supposed to sell uh, that. So, but again, that that's an honest concern for a lot of communities. All right. That's frustrating because yeah. also there are so many benefits to right. having trees in our communities. Um, all right. It's on the subject of leaves, though. We, we do have a question about that. What is the best way to deal with downed leaves and dispose of them in order to mitigate global warming? So the most environmentally friendly way to deal with fallen leaves. That's from Gary in Davenport. Aaron, you want to take that? Well, I mean, the most environmentally friendly way would just be to leave them alone. Um, but of course, there's there's implications to that. If you want to maintain some kind of ground cover like turf or even other plants, depending on, on the leaf layer, you could be smothering those plants out. And so um, if you have an area that's a little bit more natural, you may be able to do that. If you don't have that kind of area, 
Um, you can uh, collect them and compost them on site. Um, that is probably the next kind of lowest impact uh, to the environment uh, because it doesn't require any machinery or moving. Um, and then use that compost in other areas of your garden once it forms. Um, the other option is to mow them into the turf as long as you get them chopped up fine enough to fall between the blades of grass. Uh, so basically you should be able to see grass when you're done. Um, that helps return all of those, uh, all of that, those nutrients and other things that were in those leaves directly into the soil that's beneath the tree. So that's another potential. Um, and I guess, I mean, the last thing would be to collect them and ship them off to a city facility. But of course that, that takes uh, trucks and all those kinds right. of things, which I suspect they're trying to avoid. But if you can leave them on edges in places where you don't want to chop them, there's a lot of yeah. uh, pollinators and other species, uh, friendly species, that will overwinter in those layers and stuff. So where you can keep some leaves uh, on your property in a natural environment, that's actually really good for a lot of other species. Mm-hmm. Yep. Let's go back to the phone. Kathy's on the line in Fairfield. Hi, Kathy. Hi, Charity. What's your hey, question? I, I purchased a Boston fern beginning of this summer and kept it outside all summer, <clears throat> and it just thrived. It was on the north side of my house, and I watered it really well, and now I know it's time to bring it in, and I'm worried about trying to keep it um, keep it alive over the winter, and I just wondered how I should, you know, what I need to do to try to promote yeah. it to survive. Yeah. So finding kind of the brightest window in your house will make a, uh, will be a good place to start. Even the brightest window indoors is, uh, not as, you know, even the North side of your house has probably got more light outside than some of the brighter windows inside your home. It's just a lot darker in our homes. Um, at least, especially for a plant, Boston ferns are notoriously messy. Uh, when you bring them inside. So I know. I'm worried for, about that. Just be prepared for lots of little leaves falling off. That's very normal. Um, and my goal when I bring in plants like this is to keep them alive enough to take them back outside in the spring. So by the end of the winter, they may not, they, they it almost assuredly will not look as healthy as it does now but it will still be green and I can put it back outside and give it a good dose of fertilizer in the spring and uh, have, a, you know, kind of a leg up and a bigger plant to start from uh, for my porch next next spring. So be prepared for that. Do not let it dry out. Um, ferns don't really tolerate that very well. And Boston Fern's a good example of that. So making sure that you water it regularly will also help reduce some of the brown leaves falling off. But there will be a mess under this plant, for sure. <laughs> Kathy, thanks so much for the call. All right, lightning round. Um, Julie says, I'm looking for tree varieties that would fit well into a part sun backyard that has hackberries and a large pin oak close by. I planted hydrangeas, but they did not survive, so I'm seeking a new variety with good botanical interest. I would throw in serviceberry and red buds. Aaron, you got something? Ooh, those were two. Of, those were two of mine. Well, okay. that's can, perfect, can I also <laughs> throw pagoda dogwood? All right. There you go. Done. All right. Uh, Joanna in North Liberty says, "When is the best time of year to trim boxwood bushes?" 
you can prune them right after their flush of growth comes out in the spring, or you can do it right before that flush of growth um, in the late winter. If you're trying to get a really tight, like really like orderly hedge, you'll have to do it almost monthly throughout the growing season. All right. And final one, Doug wants to know what is the correct time of year to prune off the small branches that sprout from the lower part of a honey locust? The right time of year, the small, oh, like the little shoots and stuff. Yeah. Um, if you really don't want them, I'd do it any time when they're there. When the <laughs> when the blade is sharp, that's what I do. All right. Yes. We are out of time. Mark Vitosh, <laughs> thank you so much. Always a pleasure. And Aaron Style, thank you. You're welcome. Mark Vitosh, DNR Forester, Aaron Style, Iowa State University Extension Horticulture Specialist. Talk of Iowa is a production of IPR News. Our producers are Samantha McIntosh, Caitlin Troutman, and Danny Gear. We get production help from Kate Perez and technical support today from Jason Burns. You never need to miss an episode of Talk of Iowa. Please subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and have a wonderful weekend. I'm Charity Nebbe.